Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. As our nation continues to grapple with the best ways to make progress on critical issues of racial justice, we here at People of the Pod felt that we needed to hear from Eric Ward. Eric is the executive director of the Western States Center, a civil rights organization based in the Pacific Northwest and Mountain States. He is also a national voice for racial justice and a leader in the black community speaking up urgently for the need to fight anti-Semitism, which he identifies as a leading driver of other forms of bigotry. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here with you all. Thanks for inviting me. Now, as someone on the front lines of the civil rights movement today, the first thing I want to ask is, how are you? How are you doing at this really busy, really crazy time? I think like everyone else, I'm exhausted. I'm carrying a lot of weight, a lot of responsibility. I'm not alone in that. We are moving fast. Folks at the community level have really mobilized around civil rights. And, you know, it's our responsibility to, to support that leadership as much as possible. I think I'm both nervous and excited. We are watching kind of, in a way, the end of one age, you know, a period in time and the beginning of another. And we're kind of in this in-between point. And so it feels a little chaotic and we don't know what's next. And I don't know about the rest of folks, but that brings anxiety to me but also joy, right? I watch folks every day across communities, across religions, really coming together, trying to find one another, struggling with one another. And I think that bodes well. So Mm. while this chapter of the book is not ending particularly well, I think it tells us the story, in fact, will end well. Yeah, we're clearly in something of a moment, right? Historically, politically, we're in a moment. And I guess the question for someone like you and for anyone who wants to kind of be a part of making this a lasting change is how can we take a moment and turn it into something that really changes our society? So, you know, at the macro level, I feel like, wow, you know, we are actually finally poised to acknowledge that everyone in our society are fully actualized human beings. And that may not seem like a really kind of radical thing, but it's taken a lot of centuries for us to get to this point. And I'm actually really excited to, to be here, right? Um, having a strong democracy means having strong participation. And that participation doesn't happen if we only consider part of our society as, as fully uh, a human. So at the macro level, I feel like, wow, you know, uh, we are getting close to getting this right. And after 10,000 years, you know, or, you know, 40,000 years, I think we finally earned the right to that, right? So I want to own that. And I hope folks own that for a second. And if it makes you feel good, good, right? So now here's what we should do with that. We should get serious about some very specific things, right? Yeah. So you know, 20th century policing has come to an end. It is a system that no longer works for the inclusive democracy that we are. And it is time for a 21st century version of it that is grounded in community safety, 
right? And the prosperity of our communities. And I think that that is exciting. And I think we should be encouraging those conversations. We should be continuing to encourage folks to be in dialogue with one another, right? And I'll just be plain, right? We can't be a society that feels it is okay to shoot and kill unarmed uh, black people in our society or quite frankly, folks who are unarmed and running away. It is just not becoming of a democracy. So I, you know, I think policing as a policy conversation is a topic of the day and it will be the topic of the year and it will be the topic of next year. And we should not allow the sacrifices of those at the community level We've been working on these issues over the last three weeks or the last three decades to go to waste right now. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second is, is, look, we have to get a hold of the mission-oriented hate crimes. And what I mean by mission-oriented is I don't mean the average hate crime we experience, you know, that the random hate crime. Those have to be tackled too. But I'm talking about this rise of mission-oriented targeting of vulnerable communities and their institutions, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism, right, racism. So whether we're talking about the targeting of Latinos in El Paso or the targeting of Jews in Pittsburgh or the targeting of Blacks in Charleston or Sikhs in Wisconsin, it is time for our government institutions to step up and protect its citizens and its residents. And uh, we don't need new laws to do that. We need to actually start using the laws that are on the books. We have to bring transparency to those who seek to try to destroy democracy by terrorizing folks in our community. Those are the two things we could be right on top of right now. Hmm. People are talking a lot right now about structural or systemic racism, you know, the kind of racism that doesn't rely on active prejudice necessarily, but is actually all about the compounding historical factors that lead to black people having fewer educational, professional and financial opportunities today. And that lead, as you're saying, to black people being victimized by the criminal justice system. But you, Eric, you've spent a great deal of your career fighting you just called it mission-driven hate crimes, uh, fighting that kind of much more obvious, kind of traditional, maliciously sinister form of racism, white supremacy. Today, for some reason, we call it white nationalism. There's a difference, I'm sure, between the two to some degree, but it's kind of a fine point. Why is the problem of white supremacy so difficult to tackle? You know, first I tell everyone, take a deep breath, right? Everyone's going to (laughs) feel charged by what's about to come out of my mouth, but Don't be, because none of us were here, right, for the creation of the United States of America. So none of us are responsible for what happened in the past. We're we're responsible to make sure those things don't continue in the present. But it's, it's hard to address white supremacy in America because it's such a fundamental part of the creation story of the United States. And because it's intertwined in such a way, it's often hard to kind of take the thread out, right, of the quilt. And uh, that's a challenge. And, and that's why the structural piece is so important in the present, right? The way we get a handle on the lasting effects of white supremacy is that we document and monitor, right? We have to have systems that allow us to understand the disproportionate impact that African-Americans face when it comes to job discrimination, 
housing and education. We, we have to stop thinking that things just happen to end up like this or that folks simply don't work hard enough. The fact of the matter is, is that most folks in our society face the plights they are in, not because of something they've done as individuals, but because of structural systems around us, right? Accesses to network. And so that piece is critically important in terms of dismantling white supremacy. We have to shift those structures and we have to monitor those structures to make sure we are reaching equitable outcomes. But the other is something that has nothing to do with structures. It's an attitudinal. We are raised to perceive the world in very specific ways, right? And the ways that we are raised and socialized to perceive the world have a significant impact on our lives forever. And most of us live in segregated society, right? Regardless of where we live. Very few folks actually live in real multiracial settings, meaning they are regularly engaging with other folks of color uh, as friends and colleagues. It's just not how most of our society works. And that reinforces some perceptions that people have of Black America that simply aren't true and lead people to unconsciously believe, right, that Black people are inferior and white people are superior but it plays out in almost all of our interactions. And it's not just white folks who play that out, right? It's other people of color, it's black folks as well, perceiving other black folks. So I think, you know, the answer to that is really one of diversity and inclusion in our institutions, right? Making sure that our staff, our leadership reflect the world as it is, not the world that we perceive. Are there specific kind of legal or, forgive me, structural challenges, though, that make it hard to tackle white supremacist groups? So if we think about white supremacy as a set of structures, right, white nationalism is the social movement, right? Um, and and so let's talk about that social movement and uh, and the structure of white supremacy and how they interact with one another in ways that create danger uh, for all of us. So what we know from lots of studies, right? Folks can look at these studies, you can take them yourselves. We perceive black folks as more threatening just based off of visual contact, right? Heart rates increase, anxiety goes up. It's not even conscious. It's kind of just a way we've been sadly socialized in our society. So it is true, right, that law enforcement are predispositioned to see African-Americans as more threatening Hmm. just based off of visual contact. That has nothing to do with the conscious actions of an individual, right? Has nothing to do with the racial background of that law enforcement officer. Then the problem is, is that it gets rewarded, right? Further codifying that type of response. And then when bad things happen, it gets defended. And so then you get a structure that then continues to reinforce itself. Now, how does that system then interact with white nationalism as a social movement? It is the fact that within law enforcement, not all, right, but within law enforcement, 
there is a culture that perceives white nationalists as less threatening than black activists marching on the streets. And it is an unconscious condition that puts us all at risk, right? It is why Dylan Roof, after a mass shooting, gets taken to a fast food restaurant, right? Where he is allowed to eat on his way to jail, right? After murdering black people as they were worshiping. It is the reason that mass murders of the white nationalist movement aren't killed when unarmed black men are killed, right? It's a bad intersection that needs to be pulled apart. And how we do that is by asking elected officials and senior law enforcement officers to step up and provide better resources, right, to law enforcement that reduces unconscious bias. Eric, I, I want to ask you also about anti-Semitism, because you've been such an important and clear voice calling out anti-Semitism from all sources, including in the political left and in progressive circles. And we are so grateful. I'll just speak for every single Jew in the world. We are so grateful to you for that. Um, why is understanding and naming anti-Semitism so important to you? I mean, anti-Semitism is important for us to understand. I mean, anti-Semitism fuels the white nationalist movement, right? The white nationalist movement ideologically believes it is at war against what they call a global Jewish conspiracy. And what they argue is that that Jewish conspiracy is underway to commit genocide against the white race, right? It's not true, right? But that's the narrative, and that's the story that is being propagated. And that is the story that is behind much white nationalist violence in the U.S. So by way of example, it doesn't mean that black folks don't bear the brunt of racialized violence in America. We absolutely do. Latinos face it. Muslims face it, right? But here is what we need to understand about anti-Semitism. We have had huge terror attacks by white nationalists in the United States. El Paso, Texas, where, you know, Latinos, I I believe over 90 Latinos, right, were shot and killed. Uh, We had Charleston, Dylan Roof, who I mentioned earlier, right? We had the Tree of Life Synagogue. Well, in El Paso, it was Latinos. In Charleston, it was African Americans. In Pittsburgh, it was Jews worshiping in their congregation. But here's the catch that all of us need to understand. Anti-Semitism drove all three of those attacks. In actuality, all three of those attacks should be understood as anti-Semitic hate crimes, even though the victims, right, the majority of victims weren't all Jews. The truth of the matter is, is that anti-Semitism has been the leading cause of violence by the white nationalist movement, and we don't understand anti-Semitism enough to effectively respond, right, to this narrative that is being propagated by white nationalists, by armed militia movements, if we want to effectively deny these movements opportunities to, uh, these hate groups to increase their own power, it means tackling anti-Semitism as a systemic form of bigotry like racism is, like Islamophobia is, like sexism is. It means denying oxygen to those who seek to tap into it. So I often say I critique 
because I don't believe there is left-wing anti-Semitism or right-wing anti-Semitism. There is merely anti-Semitism in American society. In your important essay, Skin in the Game, How Anti-Semitism Animates White Nationalism, which we'll link to in the show notes, and I encourage all of our listeners to read, because back where we started, right, we are in a moment right now. And, and I know that there are a lot of our listeners, a lot of American Jews who are eager, who are searching for answers to know what can we do, right? I posted the black square on my Instagram account. I joined a book club about, you know, racial justice. But beyond those kind of symbolic steps, what can we do? to be helpful, to be a part of the solution to fighting this kind of systemic racism that we deal with in our society? So the thing that if I could make a wish, right, if the Jewish community even cared to shine for me, that's not its responsibility. But, you know, if folks really wanted to shine for Eric Warding, give him a great, you know, my birthday's coming up, you know, give me, you know, oh, that Eric Ward said something I liked once and, you know, I want to celebrate. Here's what I'm going to say. Fight anti-Semitism and fight it in a nonpartisan way, right? Don't worry about where it comes from. <laughs> Just worry that it came and you need to respond. Because I say this, right, as a black man, I don't want to die from anti-Semitic violence, right? I don't want my family members to die from it. I don't want my friends to die from it. And anti-Semitism is killing people in America, and if the Jewish community isn't fighting anti-Semitism, I don't know who fights it, right? Um, I don't know. And so it's a plea. It's a plea not to allow it to be used in partisan nature, right? To just fight anti-Semitism because you have skin in the game, right? And the rest of us, whether we know it or not, have skin in the game. Now, there's three ways to go about that. The three ways to go about it that I think are productive are one is understand, like, you don't treat your friends who stumble into anti-Semitic tropes, right? Like David Duke, right? <laughs> Just like when my friends who are Jewish leaders say something racist, I don't treat them like David Duke, right? I get on the phone and I say, look, let's talk about this. I don't find this very helpful. And sometimes I agree to disagree, but we have to distinguish between the argument in the house and folks who are trying to burn down the house. The second thing is this make sure anti-Semitism is on the table of discussions. Let folks know, right, that Jewish values are alive and well, right, in America. And so I think that that's critically important. And I understand the risk that that has meant historically for Jews to be open as Jews, right? And so I want to recognize that courageous step. The third is, is to, um, I think you'll fall asleep, but I'm just going to say, you know what? Read that skin in the game. If you fall asleep three times, just read it three nights in a row. When you get done reading it, do this. Find three people who you love who haven't read it and send it to them, but then get on the phone with them and say, I want you to read this too. And let's just hop on the phone and talk about it for a half hour over tea or coffee or drinks. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, for being so generous with your time and your wisdom and giving us some jobs to do. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks all.
During last week's AJC Virtual Global Forum, Israel's alternate Prime Minister and Defense Minister Benny Gantz sat down for a public conversation with AJC Jerusalem Director Avital Leibovich. Defense Minister Gantz hailed Israel's partnership with the United States and with AJC, but acknowledged that Israel cannot take bipartisan support for granted and should treat Jews of the diaspora as equals. Here's an excerpt of the defense minister's first major public appearance with an American audience since Israel formed its most recent government. Hello, Minister Gantz, and thank you so much for addressing AJC's Global Forum. Hello, Vital. It's great pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. I would like to begin our conversation with the fact that you have spent many decades of your life devoted to Israel. And more than two years ago, you decided to continue and devote your life, and you joined the political system. I would like to open this conversation and ask you, what kind of vision do you have for Israel? What kind of Israel are you hoping to see? Well, I indeed served for so many years, and I'm very proud to continue serving now in the public and political realm, I would say. But I think of Israel, in many ways, I go back to our father's first Zionist who reinitiate the Jewish life in Israel. And I would like us to be a Zionist country that based probably on four elements. Jewish country, secure country, prosperous country, and fair society, and noble society. And I think the combination between those four elements is a nation home for the entire Jewish people. It's very important. I would like the diaspora world to see us as their home as well. I would like us to see them as our partners as well. And uh, I think we're going to get there. In so many ways, we are already there, but there's a lot to do. That's quite a good and optimistic vision. Yeah. Um, in a few months, the U.S. will be going again to its uh, presidential elections. I want to ask you, how do you see the very critical and strategic relations between the U.S. and Israel right now and also looking into the future? United States is the biggest and strongest and most reliable ally of the state of Israel. Uh, our important relations, and I would say unique relations, are based on shared values, shared interests, and the fact that we are two democratic countries and we are the only democratic country in the Middle East. And this unique relation between our two countries is very important. It's being promoted by President Trump. It was held beautifully with other presidents before, and I hope that whoever come becomes the President of the United States, those relations will always stay strong and solid as they are. And the importance of bipartisan support uh, from the United States to Israel, and the acceptance of whatever party here in Israel, whoever is in the United States, this bipartisan approach, I think is very important, and we have to continue and strengthen it all along. We should not take it for granted. We should work on it, constantly speaking, and uh, I'm intent to do so. I'm so glad you mentioned this bipartisanship because AJC has been pushing forward this message for its 114 years. You mentioned President Trump, and I cannot, you know, uh, leave this conversation without asking you, what is your perspective on the Trump peace plan? 
First, I think it's a very important vision and in a way plan. I had the opportunity and the privilege of expressing it to the president himself and I've been in close contact with his people all along. It gives us a realistic approach of how a stable future should look like. Uh, and I intend to promote it as much as I can in a most responsible way. It's a baseline to continue from. Uh, and all in all, I think it's a great plan. And uh, we have to work on the basis of it. And we have to move forward with regional partners, with local partners, and of course, uh, with consensus within the Israeli society and with full coordination and acceptance of the backup we need from the United States. And I think it's a good place uh, to start from and to walk above. Thank you for sharing that. And I would like to ask you, although you're also the uh, alternate prime minister, I would also like to ask you as the Minister of Defense, what are your priorities for 2020, for 2021? Well, obviously, uh, we must make sure that we have high level of preparedness. Uh, all our fronts are active fronts. So we have challenges up north. We have challenges in the south. We have to counter terrorism. And so first of all, readiness and operational aspect in all fronts. I think that this is what we are doing. We also have to build up for future because the readiness of tomorrow is the build up that we are doing today. Of course, we will have lots of budgetal challenges, I would say, as a result of even the, the coronavirus impact. But we, we will find a way to further and strengthen uh, our capacity and capabilities in different areas of activities. And we also have to make sure the bonds between the defense forces and the society itself. I'm looking forward to initiate a new model of service uh, in the Israeli system whether it's military services, national services, civilian services. I think every citizen should give something for the country. Of course, military is first among others, but others are there as well. And I'm including all Israelis, uh, Jews, non-Jews, religious, uh, secular. Everybody should be taking part of the effort that we are running here. You know, AJC has been engaged for the past few years in campaigning on outlawing Hezbollah in its entirety with many countries, primarily Europe and Latin America. How did the recent COVID-19 impact Hezbollah? I mean, are they a bigger threat today than they were in the past on Israel? Uh, should we be concerned of uh, immediate escalation? Or how, how do you see that specific threat? I, I don't see an immediate threat from Hezbollah as a result of the coronavirus. Uh, we must understand that Hezbollah, Hamas, Jihad Islamic Palestinian groups, terrorist or semi-military terrorist organization that holds in their hand high-end operational and low-end strategic capabilities. I think we have to face them. I'm glad that countries around the world already started to understand that we are talking about terrorist organization that have several systems and sanctions against organizations or personnel who supports Hezbollah as a terrorist organization should be on the way. Germany just did it, and I think it's uh, very important that it will continue in other places. Uh, I think we should not be confused. If an escalation against Hezbollah or Hamas or Jihad Islamic Palestinian group will ever happen again, it's going to be tough 
but it's going to be by far tougher on them because we are stronger and we will be very decisive and very serious with what we are intend to do. So I'd rather be on the Israeli side if it happens. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> on this list of terror groups you just mentioned, would it be accurate to say that Iran is in the first place? Yes. We're hearing... You know the different rhetoric coming from Iranian leaders about Israel, about the West. I mean, where, where is that Look, heading? Iran is practicing regional aggressiveness all the time. It has its militias in Syria. It has the support it gives to Hezbollah, Hamas, Jihad, Islamic Palestinian group. It gives the same support to Houthis in Yemen. And I think it's the cornerstone of any negative activity and instability that we see around the world, around the region, I'm sorry. And once again, if Hezbollah will act against the state of Israel, it will pay a huge price. Unfortunately, Lebanon will pay the price as well as a hosting country. We demand from Lebanon, as much as we demand from Syria, statehood responsibility. If something happens to Israel from the soil of Lebanon or Syria, the hosting countries will have to pay the price for that. I would even call Lebanon a hostage country. It, it was taken by hostage by Hezbollah. I don't even accept it as an excuse by, for the Lebanese themselves. I don't care. If Lebanon is saying that they are a sovereign country, which they are, mm-hmm. they hold responsibility for what's happening from their area. And if it's quiet, nothing will happen. If they will put us in any danger, we will act. As someone who is traveling back and forth from Israel to the United States um, and is in ongoing touch with the Jewish communities there, I can't but feel a distancing between us Jews in Israel and our brothers and sisters abroad. I wanted to ask you, how do you see the Jewish diaspora? How important is it to you and what are your intentions in order to bring them closer to Israel? Because Israel at the end of the day is the glue. For the Jewish people. Yeah, I think it's very important. Israel is the homeland and the nation homeland of every Jew around the world. Ultra-Orthodox, conservative, reform or secular, I don't care. If they are Jewish, it's enough for me. And I've been declaring before, the Western Wall is long enough to have a place for everybody. We have Minister uh, Yankelevich. She is responsible for the relations between the State of Israel and the diaspora communities. I think it's very important to strengthen those relations. It's not only the challenges of Israel that we have to mobilize the Jewish communities around the world to support us. Sometimes it may be the other way around, whether it's on security basis or on any other basis of education. Or COVID-19. Or, or COVID-19 or whatever it is. It's a mishpuche. And we have to look at it as a family. Finally, you know, AJC has been one of the uh, leaders in the global diplomatic world, and we have been around for 114 years. I would like to ask you to share a unique, special message with the AJC audience who are watching us right now. AJC is an important strategic partner of the State of Israel. Its activities around the globe It's very important. It was important in the past. It's important in the present. It will continue to be important in the future. So never stop. (laughs) 
now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Steve Baim, the director of the Contemporary Jewish Life Department at AJC. Steve, I should note, was the very first podcaster at AJC with his Three Points podcast way back in 2014. He is retiring next week after 38 years at AJC. Steve, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend or at your metaphorical Shabbat table, what are you going to be talking about? Uh, Steffi, thank you. This uh, really is uh, an exciting time for me, uh, in many ways bittersweet time. Namely, that on the one hand, it's been a fantastic ride with AJC for 38 years, and I've got a lot of very mixed feelings about leaving. On the other hand, I'm looking forward with anticipation to the next chapter, spending time with family, friends, grandchildren. So in many ways, it is a, uh, a time to reflect a bit and a time to look forward. One issue that I've been grappling with in recent years that I'm sort of leaving unresolved in the hands of people like yourselves is uh, the ascending role of orthodoxy in American Jewish life. This is taking place as we speak on different levels. On the one hand, orthodoxy is experiencing a demographic resurgence, where 10% of American Jewish adults are orthodox, 35% of children under age five. What does that mean? Looking to the next generation, the smallest of the movements has the largest number of children. They will increasingly become the plurality. They will not be the majority, but they'll be the plurality within the American Jewish community. But then take a look at a second level, namely how many of them are willing to take an active role in Jewish public affairs. Looking at the number of potential pool, if you will, of Jewish communal activists, the Orthodox are likely to become not a plurality, but a majority of those sufficiently interested and concerned with caring and tending to the public challenges of the American Jewish community. Is that good or bad? On the one hand, it means infusion of energies that we badly need. On the other hand, we're going to have to grapple with the reality that we have real divides within the Jewish community between Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews. I would suggest to you those divides take place on two different levels and a third that's quite imminent. In other words, it's going to hit us very, very, very quickly. The first level is that there's a political divide among American Jews. Most American Jews, conservative reform movements, their mass base inclines towards center-leading left, Democratic Party, liberal politics. The mass base of orthodoxy is center-leading right, more conservative politics. That's been going on for a good number of decades. It's particularly manifest in the current polarization within American society that we're going to see in the next presidential election. It's already being bitterly contested. So that's a real divide within the Jewish community here in America. We have a second divide with respect to Israel. Orthodox Jews generally support the chief rabbinate of Israel and applaud its monopoly over matters of Jewish personal status, such as conversion to Judaism, who is a Jew. Non-Orthodox Jews not only find themselves disenfranchised by that monopoly, but for them, and for, uh, I think, Jewish history traditionally, the best outcome to a mixed marriage is conversion to Judaism of the non-Jewish spouse. We have to work towards encouraging of conversion. Position articulated, say, by no less an authority than the late Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, the dean of orthodoxy. However, the standards of the chief rabbinate is that one becomes orthodox, one becomes Jewish, only when one accepts the full observance of 613 commandments, something that American Jews are not going to accept under any circumstances. To be sure, there are more liberal approaches to conversion, but the current prevalent approach embodied in the chief rabbinate is who is a Jew, only someone who converts in accordance 
with orthodox standards of full observance of Jewish law. That creates enormous divide between the state of Israel with its monopoly over personal status in the chief rabbinate and American Jews who are uh, coping with the real problem of mixed marriage and conversion is its best response. They look at Israel and say, Israel doesn't recognize me as a Jew. Why should I be attached to Israel? I say there's a third element of this that is going to be very imminent, namely, should annexation plans on the West Bank proceed? American Jews, again, given their own liberal tendencies, find annexation to be something very off-putting. Israel seems to be bent upon that course, although I submit to you that it's still not certain and there's still elements of fluidity. But should annexation proceed, American Jews will find themselves deeply torn in terms of their relationship to Israel. So these are some thoughts for, uh, for Shabbat. I don't claim to have the answers. The best thing about my Shabbat table is that we leave with questions and unanswered areas. Steve, that gives us a lot to think about and huge congratulations on your upcoming retirement. And we hope to carry on uh, the work that you've done as well as you've done it. What a career to be proud of, truly. You know, I'm curious what you as a historian will think of our Shabbat table topic, uh, because gentlemen, at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about whether all history should be carved in stone. Of course, I'm referring to the movements across the country to topple statues and monuments to Confederate heroes and racists. Should the same standard be applied to anti-Semites? For example, in the Twin Cities, where police killed George Floyd, there is a monument to Charles Lindbergh on the lawn of the state capitol and a bust of Lindbergh in his iconic aviator hat inside the Lindbergh terminal of the airport there. Lindbergh, who was decorated by the Nazis, publicly blamed the Jewish race for dragging America into World War II. And here in New York, monuments to Peter Stuyvesant, Pepper, New York City, the Bed-Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn, Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. But when Stuyvesant, the last governor of the Dutch settlement, which became New York, finally allowed the quote-unquote deceitful race, that's what he called Jews, to settle here permanently, he imposed a fee. There was an excellent article in the foreword recently by the incredibly talented Talia Zacks that explored a fascinating and oh-so-complicated conversation in St. Louis, Missouri. The city has taken down the statues of Columbus and Confederates, but what about its name? The Catholic Church, which has a large presence in St. Louis, knows the late King of France as a pious follower of St. Francis of Assisi, who invited the poor to his own table. He was known as the Peace King for keeping France out of war. He introduced the presumption of innocence into the royal justice system, and he was brutally honest. Brutally. King Louis of France was not good for the Jews. His royal justice system condemned the Talmud and burned thousands of copies. Nor was he good for Muslims. I'm talking about the Crusades. And the city has such a scarred history with Native Americans and African Americans. But talk about a tough interfaith conversation. These are complicated decisions that do require conversation, abundant listening, and patience. Certainly not the qualities at my Shabbat table, but they are conversations worth having to figure out how to place history, no matter how ugly, in the proper context. They also aren't decisions or conversations that happen overnight. It took centuries and a strong relationship with groups like AJC for the Catholic Church to remove from its doctrine the accusation of deicide, blaming Jews for the death of Jesus. AJC has learned from experience that it takes time and trust. 
The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I believe that is a Martin Luther King Jr. quote. Well, perhaps it's true of the St. Louis Arch, too. <laughs> and that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table. Sevi? Well, Manya, Steve, as it happens, Steve, my Shabbat table talk this week is about you. Through the years, many members of my family have had the opportunity to know you, and I feel truly blessed to have been able to call you my colleague for the past six years. And I think I'll be reflecting on some of your work over Shabbat dinner with my family. This week, I heard you highlight some of the things that you have worked on tirelessly for nearly four decades. At the risk of being reductionist, and I hope in true Steve Bame fashion, Steve, for those of you who don't know, almost always speaks in neat three-point presentations, I would say that these things boil down to three things. The nature, depth, and richness of Jewish identity, the challenges young Jews face on campus, and the relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry. Working on these issues can be absolutely thankless. When you stake out a position in favor of strong Jewish identities, you can be called elitist for condescending to those who don't already have one. When you work to improve the situation on college campuses, you'll be attacked for stifling free speech or shilling for Israel. When you work to improve relations between Israel and diaspora Jewry, you need to contend with Israelis who don't care much for the concerns of diaspora Jews, and with diaspora Jews who don't care much for the concerns of Israelis. As complex, as intractable, as fraught as these challenges may seem, they are in an infinitely better place today for Steve Bame having worked on them. Steve is a man of wisdom, of integrity, and of creative, innovative action. And believe me, it pains me to say nice things about a Red Sox fan. I could list some of the initiatives that he created to address these issues, but doing that would take up an entire podcast episode. <laughs> so let me just close with this, Steve. Our organization, and more than that, our Jewish world is infinitely better off for having had you as a scholar and an advocate. You leave impossibly large shoes to fill, but I am hopeful that our colleagues will be able to live up to your legacy. And I'm hopeful, too, that you'll only be a phone call away for the next 50 years or so. To Steve, I say thank you. And to all of our listeners, we say Shabbat Shalom. Mazel tov and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz, and our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.